Welcome. Glad you guys are here. Glad to be back. We are still in First and Second Samuel, but we are coming very, very close to the end. So if you've been with us through this entire uh, study, it, it's been long, but I'm telling you, it has been so worth it. I hope, like me, that you've gleaned some things and, and some areas that you can grow in. And we've learned these lessons from leaders. And today we're going to continue on uh, in our study. We're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20. David's reign in Israel uh, is the most famous king, and he's considered to be uh, the best. When, when Kevin and I, uh, this week, even though I was gone, we, he was working on it, and I was doing some reading down there, we talked about him being like the best human king possible for a season, right? For a big chunk of his life, he did some incredible things. And in their history, he's still considered to be like their king, like King David. Everybody knows King David. And there are mighty tales told in First and Second Samuel of his ability, right? Especially his ability to war. And ultimately, though, to bring peace, peace to Israel uh, that he brought to that kingdom. He was a man after God's own heart. He wrote a ton of the Psalms. If you like to read Psalm, the Psalms, uh, you'll see a lot of them are attributed to David. Um, and God even promised to bring the Messiah through David's lineage, right? I mean, so David was highly exalted, but these last few chapters, if you've been here and, and we've seen David and we've seen where God took him and, and how he protected him. These last few chapters have been a little bit more on the, on the tough side to read and, and the tough side to, to process. When you're looking at somebody that everybody respects and everybody likes, he started strong, but then he failed and he failed in his own home. And that's brought a ton of pain. Right, this this record of sin kind of started with Bathsheba and the sin that he had with her, and then murdering her husband Uriah, and things have just kind of continued to go downhill. And and this passage today gives us a clear view of the results of sin. Right, the results are in on sin, and we're going to see them today. Okay, and so keep your ears open as we go through these. If you're taking notes, jot them down. Um, but this passage today gives us a clear view of the results of sin, and they uh, that sin leads to, and we're going to see these things, division, desolation, distrust, deception, destruction, disorder, and eventually death. A couple weeks ago, we examined uh, the rebellion, the last week I was here, of, of David's son, Absalom. Last week when I was gone, you guys looked about David journeying, journeying back home to Jerusalem uh, after the death of Absalom, and, and, and a, along the way, he had to work hard to bring peace, right? And so again, we're seeing the repercussions of sin. Last week, you guys, if you were here, you know the passage ended with a division amongst Israel, right? Between Judah, David's tribe and, and, and his people and the rest, the other 10 tribes of Israel. And that's where we're picking up this week in second Samuel chapter 20, uh, the kingdom and David 
uh, personally, really, are continuing to see the results of sin. And they're trying to figure out how this is all going to play out. How is this going to work out? And we know today we're going to see the results are in for sin, and it's not pretty. So let's dive in to this passage and see what God has for us. The result of the first sin is division. And we're going to see that here in these first few verses. Now there happened to be, uh, now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So at the end of chapter 19, Judah and the rest of the tribes called simply Israel. So we had Judah and we had Israel. We're arguing over who would get to escort David back to the kingdom, back to Jerusalem. Israel was bitter that David had sent for Judah to escort him back, okay? So David wanted his own people, um, and, and so they were supposed to be there to bring him back after Absalom's, uh, Absalom's death. Israel's uh, OG, or argument, right, is that they were like, hey, we have 10 shares of the kingdom. Like, we're a lot of tribes. We should be in this. And, and, and so now we see that they were arguing They should have been the one to bring David back. And we see, because they weren't allowed to do that, we see in these verses the bitterness of one man who was willing to step forward and say, this ticks me off. And he says, no, not do we have 10 10 portions or shares in the king, uh, and and that should be why we should get escorted back. He's saying now we have no portion in David. He's challenging his people that David is not king or should not be king. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is happening again, right? Now, notice in your Bible, uh, the words uh, are in prose, right? They, they kind of change the look of that. And it looks like it, it was either a chant, you know, or a melody, maybe a song that was sung. Could have been a rap. We don't know. But the way the author records this, we can tell this is something that he's like, I'm going to get people to start saying. This is like a slogan, right? This was Sheba's mantra. His build back better or make Israel great again, right? I mean, this is what he's trying to say. I am upset. I don't want David here. And and this is what's going to happen. This is what I want to happen. And he used it to convince the 10 tribes of Israel to revolt against David. But now we might be asking, okay, who is this Sheba guy? We find a short description here. He's a Benjamite, so it tells you what tribe he's from. He's a worthless man. The phrase there was kind of tricky, so I kind of looked into that a little bit. The phrase here in Hebrew is literally literally the son of Belial, which could also be translated the son of Satan. Okay, and so the, the author of Second Samuel, as he's writing this, he is not mincing words as to who this guy was. He's the son of Bichri. Now, Bichri, the word there is, is the word for camel. Okay, and Sheba is also known that area, uh, where, where he is and where they're from for their camels. And one of the things that we saw this week as we were looking uh, into camels in this story is how they keep going back to the animals. This is an animal that is so stubborn. 
right? A camel that is a stubborn animal. It gets its mind set on something and you can't move it from that. They're mean, they're stubborn, they're worthless animals. And so blowing his trumpet, Sheba calls for a rebellion. I mean, that's division if nothing else. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So sin brings division. David's trying to reunite again. Absalom is now dead. And and David, okay, once again, can I put this thing together? Can I bring God's people, Israel, God's children back together? Division is still a tool today. And I hope you know that, right? In our church, in the world Satan uses this today. He wants to sow division, discord, disunity. I know that Satan is so happy when churches fight amongst themselves. So there may be churches out there that we disagree with in a few things, but we need to look at ways that we can bring unity, right, amongst God's people. Because I think this is still a tool that Satan tries to use today. And so I would argue if you have in your past issues with people who are at another church, or maybe that's why you left that church, or you know that there is hurt between you and someone else that could be fixed, I would encourage you to move towards reconciling that relationship. Doesn't mean you have to spend all your time with them, right? But does God want healing in that relationship? Doesn't he desire unity over division? The second result of sin that we observe is the desolation. So let's continue on here in verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines who he had left there to care for the house and put them into a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if they were in widowhood. Now, if you weren't here for the first act of aggression towards his father, right, Absalom, he had slept with these concubines in front of all of Israel. He had taken these women who were supposed to care for David's kingdom when he ran, and he had had his way with them as if to say, you, David, my father and king of Israel, are no longer the man I am, right? This is incredibly gross. It was a bold statement. This kingdom, my father's kingdom, this kingdom under the anointed by God, David, is no longer his, it is mine. And everything that he once possessed is mine, right? So this is going back to that story. If you missed that week, that's kind of the background on that. This, though, was also, we had to remember that week as we were preaching through this, this was, this was prophesied by Nathan. After David had sinned with Bathsheba, David said, your house is going to fall apart in front of all of your neighbors, right? And, and so God was going to punish David by having some of his own wives taken from him in a quite public fashion. And, of course, his son Absalom did that. Now, David's sin and Absalom's sin leaves these poor women desolate. So after division and desolation comes distrust. This, this passage is moving quickly, uh, showing us all of the repercussions of sin. So we'll get to verse 4 here. Then the king said, 
to Amasa. Call the men of Judah together with me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. After Joab disobeyed David and killed Absalom, David demoted Joab. We had been hearing his name a ton, and we'll hear it again. Uh, but he had put Amasa over, over the armies here. So that's a reminder of who Amasa was in this story. This was kind of a political move. David saw it as maybe bringing some of the men or the men who, who were under Absalom's uh, rule in the attempt to overthrow, bringing them in because Amasa was involved in that. Uh, so David was kind of making a statement by promoting him and saying, hey, we're one people again, okay? You guys were all kind of on that side trying to kill me, but I need you. I want you. God wants us together as one people. And so he had made Amasa uh, the ruler over that. But Amasa, his first assignment here is to gather these these men so that they could go after and, and squash this next rebellion, and it doesn't go as planned, Right? I, I don't think Amasa was just one of those people who always runs late. Uh, as we were looking at the story this week, and I was reading through this, I don't think he's just running late. He's not like he's not like uh, somebody who arrives late to everything. He he's not just showing up late to the party. But I think that it was actually difficult. This the, what David had asked of him to gather all of these men in Judah. Um, so that they could respond to what was going on, would have been difficult to have been done in this short of time. The leadership, though, of David was on thin ice. David knows this. Another rebellion. This could be, you know, this could be the end. And we've seen just the, the result of sins and the, the result of sins against that David had committed against his people. And so I was wondering this week, was the trust of David, although they had seen him do so much good, were people starting to distrust him? Was it, was it also out there on that thin ice? Because sin breeds distrust, right? Bottom line, if you've been sinned against, it's hard to trust that person again. It can happen, but it's, it, it makes it more difficult. And so in our lives, we've got to be careful how we live, how we conduct ourselves, because we want people to look at us and say, I can trust this person. Anything they say, they will do. Any way that they act, we know that it's, it's going to be honoring and glorifying to God. And, and so David... People were starting to distrust him because they were seeing the effects of his sin on their own lives. Israel didn't want this, this turmoil, people trying to overthrow their king. The average person, right, didn't want that stuff going on. The warriors didn't want to go into battle continuously. So there's a lot of distrust in this story. Whether it was the mistrust of Judah towards David and Amasa, or the fact that David actually dis, uh, mistrust, doesn't trust Amasa when he now misses this deadline, whether it was good or not, we find ourselves here in the story. 
And David fears that if I wait any longer, if I, if I don't get out there chasing down Sheba, he might get away. He might get to a city that's fortified and be able to gather the troops. So he sends Abishai. You should recognize that name. And I know we've gone through a ton of names in the last six, eight chapters. But Abishai, Joab's brother, in charge of a force to take out Sheba. Go and get him, right? But we're going to find out that where Abishai goes, Joab goes also. And this leads to a great deception. The results of sin are in. And here we'll see it's all about deception. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at a great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. So Abishai leads Joab's men, the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all of the mighty men. And remember, David's troops, the ones that were loyal to him, were often uh, regarded as the mighty men. Now, the Cherethites and the Pelethites were mercenaries. Okay, so these were some these were some some pretty tough guys that were going along. He these are hired soldiers that David had had worked with before uh, because they were from the country of Philistia, which was the Philistines who had been a pain in the neck for the Israelites. They were continually battling against the Israelites and attacking them. But for a season, David had lived with them, remember? And then when uh, they were going to go out and battle against Israel, there was some distrust there. They weren't sure that they could trust David. So David stayed behind, and that way he didn't have to battle against his own people. We saw God's hand there. But this has been a long time running. But we, we see a gathering of these mercenaries, a gathering of the mighty men, and they take off because they want to get out and catch up to Sheba. But as they get into Gibeon, some 20 miles or so into the journey, here comes Amasa with the men of Judah that he had rec- uh, recruited. Right? So you got the guy who's supposed to be leading this catching up a little bit late, right, with the guys that he had gathered. Let's see where the story goes from there. Now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. And over it was a belt with a sword and a sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. Okay? And Joab said to Amasa, it is well with you, my brother. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. I don't know about that, but that's what it says here. Um, But Amasa did not observe that the sword was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. All of a sudden, this gets really serious here. David had put this guy in charge. He had gone out to get men. He hadn't showed up in time, so now we got other guys going out. But now they're joining up, and it looks like he does some little trip thing where his sword falls to the ground, and he grabs the sword with his left hand, and he grabs uh, a massa by the beard and pulls him in to give him a kiss to greet him, and then he takes the sword in the left hand, and he kills him. Again, we see the results of sin here. Sin, right? This is a, a, it's breeding deception. He deceives him, right? He acts like he's going to greet him and instead he kills him. This is, this is a dirty murder, right? This isn't clean. 
This is, this is supposed to be guys that are working together. Right? So Joab pretends to drop his sword to greet him warmly. And then we see what happens here. It's reminiscent of when Joab killed Abner. Okay? He doesn't play fair. He uses deception to overcome. He's done this before and he continues to do it now. You might have understood when Joab killed Abner, because remember Abner, uh, he was, it was a revenge situation, right? He wanted to kill him for what he had done to his sister. But this time he takes it out on Amasa simply because he was demoted so that that guy could be promoted. And when he shows up again, he's like, oh, no, this guy's back in the ranks, right? And I had just been kind of promoted again for another time. And he takes it out on him because he wants his position back. Joab's been all over the place. I think we talked about this, I don't know, it might have been two months ago, that this guy's life is like a roller coaster. There's a lot of ups, there's a lot of downs. He's done some great things for King David and for the kingdom, and then he just does these despicable things for himself to promote himself. So this is what Joab does here, deceives him, and he kills him. And it says there in the end of verse 10, then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took a stand by Amasa, right, who's on the ground dead there, and, and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let them follow Joab. So as the soldiers are going past, right, where he had just murdered him, he has one of his men standing there to kind of like move people along, right? So he's saying, if you're for David, if you're, you're in favor of what Joab just did, right, just keep moving forward. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa off the highway into a field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. The deception here, it's, it's only really complete when the young man employed uh, by Joab does a literal cover-up. He takes off his coat or he grabs someone else's. He drags him off the highway and covers him up so that this way the body was no longer a distraction, right? I mean, when I was thinking about this, it's like driving down the freeway, right? You're on I-5 and somebody gets in a little fender bender. What does everybody do? Right, they slow down to look. I think Kevin used that word, the ru- you know, you're rubbernecking because everybody's turning and everybody's looking. So now you got brakes, you get more accidents that way. And that's what's going on here. Like this might be the first rubbernecking on a highway, right? Everybody's slowing down to see what had happened, right? And so he's like, we got to get this body off the road, cover him up, the, like I said, a cover up here, and then move people on. And we're just going to continue to see sin and its results. And and it, this is just like one little thing after another in this story. But so far we've seen division. We've seen the, the desolation. We've seen the distrust. And now the deception. And here we will see the destructive nature of sin next. In verse 14, and Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed with him. 
and all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him at Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battling the wall to throw it down. So we see here they finally catch up to him, right? And we're going to see the sin of destruction here. Sheba is successful in his division, adding the Bickrites to his following. So he actually has accumulated more soldiers, right? And, and don't forget that his name is Sheba, the son of Bichri. So this is his people, right? That he has gathered to himself. And he hides out in a town called Abel of Beth Makkah. So Joab follows him there and, and he starts to battle against the city, to siege the city. He has his own men and he wants to accomplish what David sent him out to do, right? Which was to catch him and, and squash that rebellion. So they cast up a mound against the city. They start throwing things down. They're building something to go up over the wall, right? They're trying to break down the wall, right? Imagine, if you will, kind of what Beth Makkah could have looked like. A good city with a nice wall, quiet, and, and now we got a battle going on, right? So you try to protect your city with this wall, and now they're, they're smashing against it. They're trying to build something to go over it. They could have been on a cliffside. I think if, when they look at the, the place this city probably was, it was kind of up on a hill. So it was kind of sitting high, which is a great place. Kind of helps your defenses. But David's forces, right, that are under the control or the command of Joab right now, they're moving things. They're moving rocks. They're moving trees. They're literally moving earth against this city wall to get inside, right? They had to use nature to their advantage. And David's forces want to batter the wall and to throw it down, the author says here. This uh, city, it's in danger of being destroyed by Joab. And Joab is on a mission and doesn't want to stop until, until he accomplishes it. But look at verse 16. Then a wise woman from the city, or called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. And he came near her, and the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. So we're introduced to this woman, just uh, no name, but it says a wise woman, um, and so she probably had a reputation of being wise. If not, at least we see wise counsel here in what she will talk with Joab about. She's like, hey, go get Joab, bring him to me. I got an idea. And that's where we're at so far. So let's hop into verse 18 and see what she says to him. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel, which is the city they were in. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? So this wise woman engages in a conversation with Joab about the city. She gives a little bit of history of the city. This city has always been full of wise people, she says. People have come here for counsel. People have come to us with their problems, and we've been able to help them out, right? How can we fix something, a problem, a situation, a sin, a transgression, 
with anything but violence, right? And she assures Joab that she is one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. She's not a fanatical rebel, right? She didn't, and the people of that city, invite Sheba and his men into the city. And yet now the battle is raging because of where he was. Joab answers here in verse 20. Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. I mean, that's kind of funny for him to say that. But he says, that is not true. But a man of the, the hill uh, country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against the king David. That is true. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. So although there's some humor here in Joab's first words, like far be it from me, well, you know, far be it that I would destroy your city or hurt anybody that doesn't need to be, you know, hurt. Like I'm just going after this guy, even though they've been battering the walls, right? They're trying to get over the walls. They were on a mission. But he's only after one man, and this comes out, and, and this wise woman engages in him with this conversation and says, hey, how about we give you what you want and you leave us alone? Because we are for Israel. We are, uh, have always been for Israel. So there's this proposal that is made. Some of the destruction of sin can now be avoided with this woman's wisdom. But Sheba's sin catches up with him completely, right? Sheba has sinned, trying to overthrow David. James 1.14 informs us that sin, when it's full grown, leads to death. So let's see where this story goes from there. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet. And they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Sin ultimately leads to death. The end of our story here tells us that this wise woman was able to sway her people relatively easy here to comply. Let's do what they're asking. This, this rebel who's trying to overthrow the king, let's give him to them. And then that way, we won't be destroyed in the process. And so it happens, and Joab blew the trumpet to signify the end of the war, right? Now, you may remember that it began with Sheba blowing a trumpet to start out a rebellion. Here we see a trumpet being blown at the end to say it's over. It's kind of that author bookends that he's done a couple different times here as we've been studying in First and Second Samuel. But the trumpet on each side. Now, there are a few more verses in this, because the death, you would think it's kind of the end, right? We get to the death, Sheba dies, and, and we can, you know, we'll, we'll learn the moral of the story. But there's a few, few more things. And I think that these verses, these last couple that we're going to look at, show us kind of a, a bonus result of sin. And that is disorder. So let's read these together and look at this. Now, Joab was in the command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehodah, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in the charge of forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. 
and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jerothite was also David's priest. So here we see names, right? Now, this might look like an innocent list of officers and leaders within David's kingdom. It's not the first time that we've seen this, right? The authors use lists like this uh, in the book a few times to, to signify the beginning and the end of, of various subsections of the book, right? Who's in charge? Who's leading? Who's in what position? But if we compare this list to the last list, in chapter 8. So if you're taking notes, you could write that down. You could flip over that way. We are going to notice some differences, though. In chapter 8, right, ever since David's sin with Bathsheba, right, we've seen these results of that sin. And, and things have changed. So real quick, I'm going to read these couple of verses. It says, so David reigned over all of Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all of his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulud, was the recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahutub, and Ahimelech, was the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was the secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehudah, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Okay, so we see these two uh, descriptions of who was in charge. That first line in 2 Samuel 8, though, in 2 Samuel 8, David reigning and doing with justice and equity, it's missing in the second. David's still in charge. He's still the king, right? And sin now has caused so much turmoil. And when we get to the end here and and the author has an opportunity to write down what is going on, David's name is not there. So he has allowed for circumstance to change the entire landscape. There's a statement about Joab being in command of all the army of Israel. We've seen what this guy can do. We've seen the way this guy can act. He thinks about himself only. I don't think this is the guy that David or anyone else should want in charge. David's failure to deal with Joab after all that he's done. He didn't deal with him. He let him stay in in command, in control. And it leaves that that the leadership part of Israel in disorder. Right? So even even though we got to death, the final stage, we see all this disorder. Sin results in disorder. And one more thing to note in the leadership edition in verse 24, we have this Adoram. Okay? He wasn't in the first list. And what he was doing wasn't in the first list. He was in charge of forced labor. Again, it just jumped out to us when we were comparing these two lists. How far they had fallen in such a short time. Now, Just by way of preview, Adoram will not be a good dude in the future. So if you're planning on coming back through these next few chapters, uh, we'll, we'll see a little bit more. If we allow sin to remain unchecked in our leadership, and that's what we're studying. The argument all along is all of us are leaders, every single one of us, right? Whether you're the boss at work, whether you're, you feel the lowest guy on the totem pole at work, 
Whether you're in your neighborhood or in a, a, an opportunity where you can volunteer in a community or, or in the, in the area, uh, to, to be a basketball coach or whatever it might be. We're all leaders, right? And we're supposed to be learning things. And, and if we allow sin to go unchecked in our leadership, ultimately disorder will follow, right? All of these different reasons, all of these different results of sin are possibilities, right? And if you weren't sure how much sin can devastate a life, I would say after reading this, especially these last few chapters over the last couple of weeks, man alive, the the picture becomes more clear to me. This is chaos. Sin is breeding this pool of just putrid consequences, right? This isn't a crystal clear lake in front of you. This is gross, And every time we turn around, uh, sin has caused more and more damage. Now, the good news here, because we want to leave always with the good news, right? How can we be better leaders? How can you, can you and I be better leaders in our family and in our neighborhood and our workplace and every place else that we are? The good news is the gospel, and that changes everything. So as the worship team comes forward, I'm going to look at a couple of the things we looked at today and how the gospel changes everything. Because sin has results. We've seen that today. We've seen that really the last month and a half or two. But also, the gospel playing itself out through our lives, Holy Spirit's help, has results also. So let's take a look at this. The results are in on sin. But the argument we're making today is the gospel can make things better. Where sin brings division, the gospel brings unity. In fact, we are called to preserve the unity of the saints through the bond of peace. That's you and I, right? When Paul writes that in Ephesians 4, he's writing that to you all. He's not writing that to church leaders or a specific person. This is for all of us. Preserve the unity of the saints through the bond of peace. Where sin brings desolation, the gospel results in hope. Peter informs us in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, that God has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where sin brings distrust, the gospel results in trust. David himself in Psalm 56 writes, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? We can find trust in the gospel. We can trust Jesus as the King of Kings, the Savior that we need, our Lord of Lords. Where sin brings deception, the gospel results in truth. Jesus is truth. We always have to look forward to the, to the coming of Jesus and the cross and his ultimate death and resurrection as we're reading through the Old Testament. And here we see the opposite of deception is truth. And Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
John records that in John 14. Where sin brings destruction, the gospel results in building up or edification. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, says Peter in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. To be a holy priesthood. Again, he's talking to you. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We got to read these things in scripture and, and grasp them and apply them to our lives. Because we will live so much differently than if we're living in sin. We are not to be a people of destruction, but one of building up. Where sin brings death, the gospel results in life. We were just reminded that Jesus is truth, right? He said in the same sentence that he is life. And his goal in coming in John 10, verse 10, he says, he, Jesus came that we, you and I may have life and have it abundantly. Again, the opposite of what sin will bring. So much destruction, so much distrust, so much division. And yet God wants us to experience life through Jesus Christ. And not just life, just getting by, but abundant life. And where sin brings disorder, the gospel results in order. For God is not a God of disorder, Paul writes, but of order. Also, you could translate this, God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. Now, when Kevin, Pastor Kevin put this together and we'd, we had talked a little bit about this and I saw the final result of this slide, I was like, this is what I need on my desk. I need to snap a picture of this and put it on print it out, put it on my desk. So if you, if you want to snap a quick picture of that, I'll duck, get out of the way. But this is something that I think if I looked at daily, it would cause me to live a little bit different. Do we truly believe that the gospel brings these things into our lives? And it doesn't mean our lives won't be chaos once in a while. It doesn't mean that the result of someone else's sin won't affect us because it will. But the gospel, that's how things are fixed. We're all broken. We've all been broken or we will be broken again. And if you're sitting here today broken, you can find healing through the gospel. And you don't have to do that alone. So whether it's with the person that you're sitting with, whether it's with a friend or a mentor, whether you contact one of us pastors, we would love to talk to you and help you move forward in the gospel. It's not words that we figure out and and try to sound uh in, sound like we know the way we're going to point you back to the gospel because the gospel is the way the results are in and they speak for themselves if I looked at this list I want the gospel side I want my life to reflect that so you and I have an opportunity today we can't control what other people do to us but we can control what we do to other people and we can control how we respond to the sin that other people might have against us. Let's reject sin. 
We don't have to live with the results that it brings. Let's embrace and praise God for the gospel, the good news, for Jesus Christ, and the life that it brings, one that reflects the beauty of Jesus Christ.